Alaska's newsmakers. Action Line, K-I-N-Y. Welcome to Action Line. Ken Smith here in studio. And today we're going to be talking about climate change. Yes, it's a pretty important thing in our lives and it's on the minds of every citizen as well as legislators. And it's on the mind of a man who makes his life following it, Matt Jackson, climate program manager for the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. He's based in Sitka. Welcome uh, to the show, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. You're in Sitka. How long have you lived there? Um, I've lived in Sitka since 2013, and I've been in this role doing climate work for SEAC since uh, 2020. Why Sitka for climate change? Is is this a is there a reason you positioned yourself there, uh, or is it just uh, you had a choice and that was what you chose, or is that a, is there something going on there that you can monitor climate? That's a good question. Um, when uh, when I first took this position, I moved to Juneau to be in the capital and in the uh, at the main SIAC office. But as the pandemic uh, took hold, I was able to work remotely, and, and Sitka is my home, so I was happy to work remotely from Sitka. But I am uh, really excited to be coming back to Juneau uh, next week uh, to do some work with uh, the legislature and with the community in Juneau. Uh, you know, we've been following the organization of the state house uh, very closely, and we're glad to see that the the House of Representatives for the state legislature organized yesterday, and we have high hopes that the Alaskan legislature can actually do a couple of things this year to address emissions, but also lower the cost of energy, particularly for rural Alaskans who pay, as we all know, extremely high costs for energy. Um, so that's what I'm coming to Juno for next week, and SEAC has a lot planned. Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, maybe a little background on the organization. It seems like they do quite a bit. Yeah, we uh, have been around since 1970, and our our legacy issue is really uh, protecting the Tongass National Forest, uh, which is a, a climate change issue in and of itself because the Tongass stores um, millions of tons of CO2, uh, by some measures 8% of all the CO2 that's stored in all forests in the United States is stored just here in the Tongass. And um, not only is it already storing millions and millions of tons of carbon. It's also storing more tons of carbon every year as the forest grows and uh, trees um, fall over and kind of uh, store their carbon in the soil. Uh, so protecting the Tongass has always been the core of SEAC's mission in that uh, we didn't know it in the 70s and 80s necessarily, but that was having a really positive impact on the climate in terms of avoiding emissions from logging and also preserving forest land to continue conserving carbon. Uh, but in the last couple of years, we have realized that Southeast Alaska has a role to play in the statewide issue of climate change. Uh, you know, even though we might not uh, be up on the North Slope actually pumping oil or uh, in Southeast, the major communities don't burn fossil fuels for power, uh, we still have a role in the state, we are in the same atmosphere, and we wanted to take more action to address climate change head-on. Well, it's interesting uh, you're my guest today, because yesterday the governor was in the studio, and he uh, talked in, at length about the carbon legislation that he's proposing. 
Yeah, um, there's been a lot of chatter about that, and I think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, and you know, my take on it is that it's a really interesting idea. The devil is in the details, and we haven't seen the details. Um, I think it's promising, but uh, the key factor, the key principle that people need to understand with carbon credit markets is the principle of additionality, which means that additional carbon is being stored or taken out of the atmosphere than would have been otherwise. And so when we're looking at carbon markets, particularly for the biological sequestration that the governor is talking about, it's absolutely essential to show that these are um, forests that are being preserved additionally, that we're not taking lands that are already in like a state park, for example, and trying to claim carbon credits for them because it's not actually additional. They were already protected. And that would require, um, you know, decreasing logging operations in, in state forests and things like that. And if that's the way the governance bill goes, then I think that's great. Um, but if that's not the way the governance bill goes, then I'm not opposed to the state finding creative ways to make money. I think that's great. But unless there's additionality written into the heart of the bill, then it's not really going to be a climate solution. It's more of a, a financial instrument. And again, creative ways for the state to make money are very necessary and important right now, and I'm a big fan of them. But unless there's additionality, it's not actually a climate solution. It's just a financial instrument. Not to dwell on carbon credits, and I know you have things you want to talk about that you lined up for this show, but he mentioned the governor growing kale and then bringing it out to sea where it would collect carbon. Have you heard this, and is it viable? I had not heard that. I didn't see that in the in the recap of his interview. Uh, did growing kale and dropping it out to sea or growing seaweed? Sea, think, seaweed, so maybe I, I, seaweed, <laughs> I guess. But kale I thought was mentioned, but I, I no, I got it. We'll just back it up and say seaweed. Because, um, you know, I, I, that was something I just never was on. I never even thought that was possible that you would grow seaweed as a carbon credit and bring it out to sea. Well, again, it's a, um, it's a question of additionality, and that's a very uh, speculative method for actually sequestering carbon. It's not clear if that carbon actually stays at the bottom of the ocean or or what actually happens to it. Um, and so it's a speculative technology. And again, if, if the governor can find a way to bring in the state revenue for doing that, then that's a, that maybe that's a good way to make revenue, but I'm not uh, confident that it will actually help address the climate crisis. Well, let's get on to your uh, agenda. You have some things lined up. You are coming over here to uh, talk to the legislature. Why don't you fill us in on your goals and uh, all the things that you look to uh, achieve in the next year? Well, I think um, I don't want to take credit for these goals. They're not mine at all, but there are uh, several good ideas that were working their way through the legislature in the last session that didn't make their way to the finish line. Um, and some of those ideas are, for example, extending the Renewable Energy Fund for another 10 years, uh, creating a, a green bank to help finance green energy initiatives in the state, and also a renewable portfolio standard, which would require certain utilities in the state to reach uh, renewable energy uh, goals by certain deadlines. 
And those are three bills that were introduced last session by different legislators uh, or by the governor himself in some cases, uh, but didn't pass the finish line. So Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, along with uh, folks from all over the state, this is really not just a conservation issue. This is uh, an energy and economic issue, too, are interested in seeing these three bills pass the finish line. And um, one that I think is just simply the most important thing to get past is the Renewable Energy Fund. Uh, For those who aren't familiar with it, the Renewable Energy Fund was created in 2008, and since that time it's been used to complete more than 100 renewable energy projects across the state. Uh, It saved uh, those rural communities where those projects have been completed, um, literally millions of dollars in diesel, 75 million in the year 2017 alone. Um, But unfortunately, it is scheduled to expire at the end of this year. And uh, luckily, Senator Kaufman from Anchorage has uh, already introduced a bill to extend it for another 10 years. And uh, I think that's really fantastic. And I want to thank Senator Kaufman for filing that. Uh, but we need to see it passed. It's, it's, filing a bill is one thing, passing it is another. And the other issue is uh, how much money is appropriated for the Renewable Energy Fund. Uh, The governor's budget luckily includes $5 million for the Renewable Energy Fund, but if anyone has tried to build a renewable energy project in Alaska, they know that $5 million is a drop in the bucket. That might not be enough to build even one complete renewable energy project that can help power a village like uh, Cape Rangoon. And so uh, we are going to be working hard to make sure not only the Renewable Energy Fund is in fact extended for another 10 years, but it has the money that it needs to make a difference. What's your take on Alaska with renewable energy? Are we behind or are we ahead? How would you grade renewable energy projects in the state? Oh, man, it's uh, Alaska is such a diverse state. You know, here in southeast, we are very blessed that most people in southeast Alaska, uh, all of the bigger communities, are running by and large on 100% clean salmon-safe hydropower, and that is a huge success, and it allows our communities to focus on wonderful things like the dock electrification that's happening there in Juneau, or um, emphasizing the switch to consumer electronics like heat pumps and electric vehicles, Um, but that success hasn't been even around the state, or even within our region. You know, um, I think it's it's sad, and frankly, it's unjust that communities right next door, like Cake and Angoon are still burning diesel. They've been left behind. And, um, you know, I work closely with uh, folks at Inside Passage Electric Cooperative um, in particular, for example, who are working very, very hard to try and provide more affordable energy to those rural communities. But the, the funding simply isn't there right now. And that's why programs like the Renewable Energy Fund are so important because it's helping uh, parts of Alaska that need to catch up with uh, the, the investments that communities like Juno and Sitka have been able to make, it helps them do that. And that's uh, essential not only for climate change reasons, but also just equity and economic opportunity reasons. It's really, really hard to start a business in a village where you're paying 50, 60, 70 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity. You can't keep a cooler on in a grocery store if you're paying that much for electricity. You have any specific projects uh, that... You're talking to the people of Angoon. What would you suggest and, and propose? 
Well, I don't have to suggest anything to the people of Ingram because they know exactly what they need, which is the uh, Thayer Creek hydroelectric project. And that is, I don't want to speak for Inside Passage Electric Cooperative or Kutsnuwu Inc., who are, they're co-developing the project. Um, but I will say that they need support. It's a big project. It's very expensive to develop anything in Alaska, much less in a remote rural location like Yangon. And uh, they need support from the state and federal governments to get across the finish line because it is, it's a shame that the village of Angoon is, is still 100% reliant on diesel in 2023. Um, and they deserve some support from our society, from our, from our governments, to get that project across the finish line. That project in particular is, uh, is unique in that it was promised to the community of Angoon in Anilka uh, in, the, in 1980, I believe. But uh, they have never received the support they need to to complete it. So uh, they are working really hard to get that across the finish line. And I think for my part and CX part, uh, we just really want to advocate that they get the investments that they deserve and that they need. How much do you think the Renewable Energy Fund should be to be productive? Um, You know, I think there needs to be an assessment of how much it's going to cost to get every village in Alaska on renewables and then work backwards from the need. Uh, I think a good starting point would be $50 million per year. When the Renewable Energy Fund was created in 2008, it was created with uh, a $50 million per year appropriation uh, for the first three years. And um, $50 million is a lot less money now in 2023 than it was in 2008. Uh, but I think it is still a more appropriate starting point. But I think in the long term, uh, if I were uh, a governor, and I'm not, but if I were, I would, um, you know, commission a study that says how much do we need to get to the finish line, and then let's make a 10- or 20-year plan to get to the finish line. Is there a task force in place to address these issues and and put projects and proposals on the floor? Uh, there is not a task force. Um, the Alaska Energy Authority is a, a great uh, project of the state of Alaska, and they do a lot of different things around energy. They're exactly what their name sounds like. Uh, and they uh, administer the Renewable Energy Fund. I think they do a good job with the money that's allocated to them. Uh, but I'll give you an example of how uh, policy affects their policy set by the governor and by the legislature affects the work that they're able to do. Uh, in this year's budget, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe there is $25 million uh, budgeted for uh, making energy efficiency improvements to diesel generators. But there's only $5 million budgeted for the Renewable Energy Fund. And you know, to me, that ratio is all backwards. Uh, is making diesel generators more efficient uh, a good thing? Yeah, it's, it's good. But what would be even better is switching these communities to renewable energy so that they don't need diesel, because diesel is very expensive to operate year, year after year after year, and there's no getting away from that high cost of diesel. Um, and so in my mind, that financial priority is backwards. We ought to be uh, investing 50 or more million per year into the renewable energy fund, and then, um, you know, focusing on diesel efficiency only in the communities that will be the hardest to transition to renewable. Um, And so that's an example of how, you know, even though the Alaska Energy Authority does a really good job administering the Renewable Energy Fund and many other projects, 
uh, they're just limited by the amount of money that is given to them by the, in this example, the governor's budget. And so one thing that I'll be talking about next week, uh, I hope, is how we can flip that ratio and start investing more into renewable energy than we are into, into maintaining diesel generators. Very good. We're talking with Matt Jackson, Climate Manager for Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. Renewable energy, green energy. Let's talk a little about that as well when we come back on Action Line. Action Line continues. K-I-N-Y. Welcome back to Action Line. Ken Smith talking with Matt Jackson, the Climate Program Manager for the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. We're talking about renewable energy, green energy, uh, one of the other things you mentioned, uh, Matt. And renewable energy, you're talking about hydro. What are the other renewable energies that are uh, big projects on the horizon or currently underway in the state of Alaska? Um, well, hydro is huge in southeast, obviously, um, and wind and solar are the other uh, legs of this three-legged stool, I'll say. Um, an example of a really interesting project that is applying for a renewable energy fund uh, grant monies, actually, is a proposal from uh, Homer. There's uh, a lot of offshore natural gas platforms in Cook Inlet, in that part of Cook Inlet, and uh, many of them are now being decommissioned as uh, cooking runs low on natural gas, and folks are starting to look for alternatives to natural gas as uh, energy. And uh, they want to install offshore wind on these existing uh, formal, former oil platforms. And I just think that is such a cool idea because it shows how we can take the, um, the leftovers of this kind of old and declining fossil fuel industry and turn it into uh, a regenerative economy that keeps going and in many cases can use the same workers. Um, you know, there's already workers who are trained on how to uh, maintain and uh, transport to and from these offshore natural gas platforms. And with just a little bit of training, they can take that similar skill set and put it towards maintaining them as offshore wind platforms. And a lot of the environmental permitting and all of those things has already been done. We've already gone through that process. And so it's a really cool example of how uh, we can transition straight from this old model of using fossil fuels into a more renewable and sustainable future. You mentioned green energy. Let's expound upon that a little bit. Yeah, green energy, in my mind, is energy that comes from natural processes that we can harvest uh, in perpetuity. You know, that means uh, rain falling from the sky here in southeast. It means the sun shining. It means uh, the wind and the waves blowing. It means, uh, in some places, geothermal. Uh, I think a lot of folks have had an opportunity to hear uh, about the the wonderful stuff they do up at Chena Hot Springs, where, um, you know, they heat greenhouses and and derive a lot of energy from those hot springs. But there's also uh, projects in the Aleutians, looking at tapping geothermal from some of the uh, volcanic activity out there that could lead to a lot of renewable energy potential. I think things that are on the other side of the line, in my mind, are uh, nuclear power. Uh, nuclear is obviously doesn't create any greenhouse gas emissions, but it is still a finite resource. Um, we will run out of it in relatively soon in in the scale of civilization uh, if we keep using it for energy. And also it comes with a lot of side effects. So I'm not saying that there's no place for the occasional 
nuclear power plant somewhere in the world, but it, it's not green energy. And for example, I wouldn't advocate that it be included in, in a law like the Renewable Portfolio Standard. Um, another thing that you know, I think the governor and, and a lot of other uh, people in the fossil fuel industry try to do is position natural gas as some kind of green energy. And again, natural gas, you know, it, it might have a very small role to play in the future of our energy uh, system, but it's simply not green. It's not renewable, and it comes with a lot of emissions and um, a lot of uh, environmental quality issues. And so while natural gas certainly is a significant part of Alaska's energy system today, I, I don't think it will be a significant part in 20 years. And you see that uh, in the actions of Hill Corp, for example, that is um, starting to look into tidal energy and alternative uh, ways to power the, the Cook Inlet region that don't rely on natural gas. Well, we're in Southeast. We have a little volcano that's dormant over there in Sitka called Mount Edgecombe, and it has some activity going on underneath. Is that a tappable natural green energy? I don't know if anyone's looked into that question. Uh, that's really, that's certainly interesting. Um, although uh, Mount Edgecombe is about the center of it, the caldera is probably 16 or 20 miles from, from Sitka itself, which is a lot of uh, transmission lines across water. Uh, but there are uh, a lot of other geothermal resources around southeast uh, Tenneke Springs, to name one community, has a, a little greenhouse now that is they're not generating electricity from it, but they're, there's a business there that is heating a greenhouse from that hot water. And there has been a lot of research done over the years on the potential of the Goddard Hot Springs area, which, again, is um, about 15 miles from Sitka, so that does create a transmission problem. Uh, but I think that uh, the more options that we're looking at, the better. You know, we're going to need a diversified suite of renewable energy options, and so geothermal is... Um, less of a proven resource than wind and solar and hydro, but it's still uh, a really interesting opportunity that deserves more uh, more looking into. Very good. Well, that will do it for today's show with Matt Jackson, Climate Program Manager of Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, my guest today on Action Line. He will be in Juneau next week. Are you going to be uh, aggressively going after your... Uh, Goals with the legislature? <laughs> Will we see you on the floor speaking? Uh, no, there's, I don't believe that uh, aggression is ever a good uh, tactic for change. Um, I think that uh, what we hope is that there can be a lot of uh, civil discussion. I, I do uh, have meetings scheduled between myself and some of the Southeast legislators and uh, some constituents that are concerned about this issue. And I would encourage everyone in, in Southeast Alaska and Juneau to do the same. Um, if you don't already know your legislator, all of our legislators in Southeast Alaska are really friendly, approachable folks. Um, you can go to uh, go on the web and just Google their name and find their, their official office phone and just ring them up. You don't have to be a lobbyist uh, or wear a suit and a tie to talk to your legislator and tell them that you care about climate change and energy and that you want to uh, see some action uh, on addressing the climate and energy crisis. So, uh, no need to be aggressive. I think that there's a lot of uh, room for healthy, civil, productive conversation, and I, I encourage everyone in the region to, to make a call to your representative. Excellent. Thank you for joining me today on Action Line. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ken. And that does it for today's show. 
Action Line. Weekday mornings. Action Line. If it happens in Southeast, you'll hear it on Action Line. K-I-N-Y.